Welcome to season three of Been There, Done That, a pandemic survival podcast. I'm your host, Felicia Perez, and in this show, we'll be talking to some real life experts on how to get through this time filled with unexpected changes, challenges, and feelings of helplessness. And those experts are everyday people like you and me. Turns out we may be more prepared for this moment than we realize. So let's get started and see what we can relearn. Today, we're joined um, by my good friend, Paku, again, um, joining us uh, close to the Ozarks, but not in the Ozarks. Um, And um, I am so thankful for you making the time on this very busy and very um, stressful and very chaotic in many ways, useful and not weekend. It is May 30th almost the end of May 2020. It's a Saturday. It is pretty much warm outside across the country, varying degrees of sunshine. And um, we are at a time when yesterday, the big news was that the key officer um, who was kneeling on the neck and responsible for the murder of George Floyd, his wife, um, who is Hmong, mm-hmm. came out publicly saying that she was going to divorce her husband. Uh, one of the uh, interesting aspects of that is initially many folks were rallying and saying, great, good, good for you. Yes, divorce him. And this morning, there is a twist in the story that, well, is she actually leaving him because she doesn't agree with what he did has done there were multiple incidents before this and her own personal safety or is she divorcing him to keep half of their assets because they are pretty intense property owners in florida so that there can be some beyond sustenance sustenance of her own economic livelihood but also of his Um, we also have a lot of movement that is beginning to happen uh, from national organizations like Asian uh, Asians for Black Lives around really calling out a particular culture of non-white folks of color who are accomplices or supporters or partners in holding up um, different violent and policy forms of white supremacy in action that hurt people of color, and in this instance, particularly black bodies. Um, And so it's a complicated time Mm -hmm. for folks who are people of color and who are on the side of being anti-white supremacy um, and who are pro-social justice and pro-Black Lives Matter um, in a situation of having to hold, you know, our own people accountable for their contributions um, to things that we might not be uh, supportive or a part of. And so I just want to set all that up to then say, Paku, how you doing? What are you thinking? How are you feeling? Um, and what's going through your mind um, right now and over the last couple of days? Um, well, first, thanks for having me back on. Um, I am very tired today. Um, I've spent the week watching what's happening in the Twin Cities in particular, because that's my hometown. That's where I'm from. That's where a lot of my family is. Um, we go there often and I grew up there 
And um, I'm also watching closely because most of my friends who remain there um, are protesting and engaged in what's happening there. And that includes like, which is interesting, I've observed this week, is that includes like friends from high school that like, you know, like Facebook friends from high school who I wouldn't call my close friends, but who I never imagined were super political. I love that they have a particular sort of like title. Yeah. Your Facebook <laughs> yeah. friends from high school. Yes. It's not it's your friends from high school. No, it's, it's my Facebook, Facebook friends from my high Facebook school. friends from high school. They, they have their own group on my Facebook list. Yes, yes. <laughs> but um, even those folks are showing. And that's like, you know, the, and my friendships are around the gamut from like, my really early days doing anti-racism organizing, hardcore grassroots organizing, those friends are all, many of those friends are still living in the Twin Cities. Everybody's out. Um, so that's been really, uh, I've been really sad because I can't be there. Organizers are clearly asking people not to come anyway. So like, I know that. I'm resp- I, like, I understand why. I respect that. There's enough challenges of people who are Ajahn Provocateurs coming. They don't need more people from outside. There's just all the complications. So that's meant that I've been consuming. This is something we've talked about in other episodes. Like I've been consuming as much as I can. We talked about this around like the overconsumption on COVID yeah, yeah. content and news. Yeah. That you were watching the news all the, all the time. time. And, and this is really how, pulled yes. back. Yes. And now I'm like, and I had sort of pulled back from major consumption and it's been nothing but consumption again, media consumption. Um, and um, that's been so important to do because I can't be with the people that I love and I want to be with. Right. And I can't organize in my hometown where I want to be right now. Um, so that's been really important to sort of fill that gap. And it's also just like, I, I don't know how else to be there. You know, um, the other thing that's, the, but the, really, I think the other thing that's probably made the week very, very difficult is right. So you were talking about Chauvin's wife being among the first, in fact, the first among Mrs. Minnesota, which is a big deal. That's a very big pageant in Minnesota. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Time, time out, time out. Oh, yeah. Okay. So for the listeners who um, are coming to this new, um, how did you pronounce that officer's name? Chauvin? Chauvin. Is Chauvin. how he's pronouncing it. Okay, so Officer Chauvin is the is the name of the officer that murdered yes. George Floyd. Okay. Yes, whose and, knee was on his neck. Yes, and what is his wife's name? His wife's name is Kelly. Kelly Chauvin. Kelly I don't know Chauvin. her I don't know her Hmong name. I'm assuming she has a Hmong name. She probably gave herself an Anglo name when she came here, like a lot of immigrants do. So right. um and I don't know what her I don't know what clan she's from. Like I don't know her last name. I don't know her surname. I could probably, I think maybe, maybe she was Kelly. She might have been a Yang, but I don't know for sure. Don't take my word for it. Don't take, a, don't take my word, word for it. You could but, Google Kelly Chauvin and you would find out that she was married to this police officer. Yes, but what does this pageant win? She was what? She was the first, first Hmong Mrs. Minnesota pageant winner. She was winner. Mrs. Minnesota? She was Mrs. in 2019. Very recently. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. How old is this person? Mm, I don't know. She's, I think she's maybe in her, she may be close to my age. She might be in her 40, late 30s, early 40s. But, but you can win Miss Minnesota when you're in your late 30s? Yeah, Mrs. Minnesota. Miss, Different uh, than Miss Minnesota. Mrs. Uh, Minnesota. Which inherently means you're older and married? Or just married. You don't have okay. to necessarily be older, just married. 
I'm just, which, you know, I'm just looking for, and I'm pretty sure, guidelines for this. I'm pretty sure hetero, like heterosexual, heteronormative married, you know, not oh, like, right, right. Like, you're not Mrs. Minnesota and you're queer. You know, what? <laughs> you know, what? You know what? thank that's, you. Thank I just you. want to clarify because, thank you know, you. for listeners out there, my, my, my queer friendly pageants, my queerness was apparently accidentally on mute. So, uh, so, so thank you for bringing that one in. So, so okay. Yes. So this is, so, but this she, is who she is. Yes. So this is who she is. So nope, people didn't know. And then they found out. So there's, okay. So let me just pause and say, there've been many layers for me this week, um, around Asian Americans being in relationship and out of relationship with what's happening in Minneapolis. Um, and so that's like one, that's a racialized layer. And then there's this ethnic layer because not only was Chauvin's wife a Hmong person, but one of the other cops who was there who watched and let this happen was a Hmong dude. And wait, I'm Hmong. He, wait, he was Hmong too? Yes, his name is Tu Tao. He's a Hmong dude. Who, by the way, has also had past charges of excessive force um, and against other people of color. Um, so both Chauvin and Tao both have records of um, reports of excessive, um, of force. What, what, yeah. I, yes, force, excessive force. Um, so it's just like all, all of this is happening, right? All of this is happening. And I'm seeing like, not just Asian Americans, but like my people, yeah, Hmong yeah. people. Which is a whole other level, level. A yes, whole other level. And in the Twin Cities, it's a huge deal, right? The Twin Cities has right now the largest population of Hmong people in the country. So like it was Fresno for a while, now it's the Twin Cities. Like there's, like there's just a ton of us in the Twin Cities. And a lot of refugee relocation has happened there. And then multi-generational people not are but living there. Wait, let me ask you something. The Asian cop who also um, was then charged, tried in New York. Oh, Peter Liang. From? Peter Liang. He's, he's Chinese-American. Now, Peter okay. Liang, who killed Akai Gurley in New York. Yes. Also a cop. Yes. Um, and this was he, what, 2018, 2017? Yeah, I was like, yeah. 20, I was at 80 million rising then. It was a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And lots of Asian American groups were um, saying, we need to hold him accountable. He, he killed this black man. He killed this person. And, and there he were, is. There were a lot of folks defending him. Oh, tons. There was like, there were a ton of people, ton of Asian Americans, not just Chinese American, but a ton of Chinese, a ton of Asian Americans saying, why are we going after Peter Leung? Like, why is it that we're going to charge him? And we're going to convict him um, when we don't convict white cops for this. So he shouldn't be, basically, so he shouldn't be convicted either. Which, what, first of all? Right. And second, what again? Like, are you kidding? Like, but you know, I, so what I, why I wanted to bring him in is because how does it feel as an Asian American when it's someone who's Chinese and not Hmong? Versus now, when it is oh. somebody who's Hmong, right? Like for yeah. me as a Mexican, when I when when my people, which are brown people, yeah. um, you know, folks from 
but anyways, let's just brown people, right? When, when Latinx community members yeah. do something that I am fundamentally against and completely contradict my values, I'm like, where were they from? And as soon as I find out that they were not from Mexico, I'm like, yeah. phew, shameful, bad, phew, right? Yeah. Yeah. But when it is someone who's Mexican, as am I, it's a whole nother level. And then if they're my family members, then if I'm like really, really, really related to them, it, you know, like, so there are layers. And so that's why I want to bring it in. Like what's going on? Yeah. Um, I really appreciate you asking the question because I think the fact that's, that's so true. I was like, Oh, ashamed Asian Americans and our anti-black when it was Peter Leon, Asian Americans and our anti-blackness and, um, but what I also always just sort of knew, know, is that like there's a real, and even amongst Asian Americans, there's a real historical, cultural divide between multi-generational Chinese people who've been here a long time and Chinese Americans. Now, I don't know for sure if Peter Leong's, I don't, I don't even know for sure if Peter Leong's family is like long-term Chinese American. Right, right, right. And the, so the rift is like between that group of Asians and then groups of Asians like mine, people who came 19, post-1965, post-1975, boat people, refugees from war. And so like, I've always understood my connection and rightfully so my political relationship and the way race has socialized me with all kinds of Asians. Um, and so I often will take ownership, but I'll, and, and I know that my own Southeast Asian background makes my, my experience very different yeah. than a lot of other Chinese, other Asian Americans. So when this week, mm-hmm. when this week, it was my hmm. the place where there's a ton of Hmong people mm-hmm. and like, not only was it Tutau the cop and Kelly Chauvin and like, I, oh it wasn't my God. just them, Wait. it wasn't just them, but it wasn't just them, but it was also like tons of Hmong people behaving badly, poorly, and acting out anti-blackness. So the response was like, the response on, uh, to, on Tuesday from a lot of Hmong people, including somebody who was one of the first Hmong state house reps, a Hmong guy. Mm-hmm. I won't say his name, but if you Google Hmong state house rep, former, you'll probably find him. Um, who posted on his own Facebook page, why all this rush to like these press releases and press events? This is on Tuesday after, after Mr. Floyd had been killed. Why all this rush? And like nobody was rushing to do press releases when the Hmong lady got her face kicked in on the, on the train. Mm. And I was like, oh Lord, this is, this is it. This is it. This is it. Right? A black man just died. And let us Asians just center ourselves and engage in the, like, the most obvious kind of anti-blackness, right? Like, then be like, what about us? Now, I'm not saying maybe there's, like, there should have been, yeah, should have been press releases too, but, like, this is not the time. This is not about us. This is, like, it, ju- it was so infuriating. And then, like, and I just kept thinking, and this is a person who's a pretty big leader, not just in the Twin Cities, but, like, people across the country know this person. And then all of his followers were like, yeah, yeah, we agree. Nobody cares about us. They only care about them. Oh, the black people. Nobody cares about us. Oh, like we should start a, you know, yellow lives matter move. And I was like, shut up. Just everybody shut up. Shut up. So I was like, 
feeling real stabby on Tuesday morning. And then I was like, shit, like someone's got to say something about like, like I need to intervene. I need to at least like say, hey, this is not right. And then I had other people calling me like all kinds of Asian American folks who are like friends, family, people who are working in politics that I know who are like, we need to issue a statement. We need to do something and we need to talk about this because we're getting all these Hmong people, like, you know, lots of political groups of Asian Americans. We're issuing groups like we stand in, like we agree, we support Black Lives Matter, we support the black community, all of this stuff. And then they were getting phone calls from Hmong people saying, oh, you're going to support them? What about us? You don't do this for us, blah, blah, blah. What about us? What about us? And I was just, it was so predictable and also so painful because it's not like Hmong people haven't been experiencing discrimination in anti-Asian and anti-Hmong racism and anti-Hmong ethnocentrism in particular in that town, in the Twin Cities, as progressive as it can be, it's not been easy for Hmong people either. So, so like trying to tackle the anti-blackness and hold the realness of our own experience has been really challenging. And I've been really public. Everything I posted about it this week has been public and I don't normally do that, but only because I know it's getting traction and some Hmong people are seeing it. Um, but like, it's just, it's been really, really hard. It's been really, and I'm like, and it's exactly what you described. It's like, oh, they, these people are really my, they're like really my people, really my people. Um, and it's been, you know, like, and it's also been really hard to see. It's like the sort of, the way that anti-Asian racism is mixing in with our own anti-blackness and how we're acting it out. Like a very high profile, um, black culture maker tweeted um, when everybody found out that Chauvin's wife was Hmong yeah. and they didn't identify her as Hmong. They identified her as Asian mm-hmm. and everybody was like predictable. Of course. Yeah. And I'm also like, yeah, I mean, there are a whole lot of people who hate black folks and who really in fact dislike lots of people of color, but people who look like me were the acceptable ones. Even the poor refugee who came here, who was a single mom with three of her own kids before the dude ever met her. Like all of these things can be true because we're the acceptable ones. And so like, I'm not mad. I'm not mad at this culture maker for saying that because I know that that's what the construct has created Asians to be. It's what people believe. And also it's what a lot of us do. We also are like, yes, we're different. Yes. We love us because we're white or love us because we work hard. Love us because we are not black. See, we're not black. And so, like, that I can hold and be like, of course other people would say those things. Of course other people would see that. And it really hurts. It really hurts. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It really hurts. And, and you got me thinking about something right now. I remember working at an organization with a mutual friend of ours, a couple of mutual friends of ours as the co-directors at the time. And I remember saying something like, I'm not going to be able to come in tomorrow because I have to go to the doctors and I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to be here. And my boss at the time said, will you stop saying you're sorry? Mm -hmm. Don't apologize. Don't apologize for coming late. Don't apologize for having to go to the doctors. Don't apologize for needing to er leave early. Don't apologize. 
Mm-hmm. And it was this big transformative moment for me. I had just left being in, in the classroom and went back into the nonprofit world. And I was like, stop apologizing. Nobody has ever told me in a position of power over me to stop mm-hmm. apologizing. And there's something, as you were saying, about this culture maker who has this call out or call in sort of image, right? Of, of course, he's married to an Asian woman, right? It's like, oh, yeah, right? Like, yeah, okay, I'm going to take that. Like, why is it that over and over again, so much of what I hear is that those willing to be accountable, those willing to look in the mirror, those willing to maybe say, I'm sorry, are more women of color Mm. than not. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder how much of that willingness and that acceptance of things is a part of a cultural learning as well, that you're going to be corrected. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. And you do have that enough. Your, every, your go-to is I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Excuse me. I'm sorry. Excuse me. I have never heard a bunch of straight white men have to get around me and say, I'm sorry, excuse me, can I get around you? Mm-hmm. But it always happens when it's like a, a young woman of color. I'm sorry, excuse me, can I get through? Oh, I'm sorry, did I hurt you? know, like the sorry, the apology, the owning of something. And, and so many of the things that have been happening lately, whether it's, it's folks who are uh, deciding they're going to not comply and not wear a mask, and not stay six feet apart, and not shelter in place. I have been looking at these folks and saying, it's because you've never had to change your life mm-hmm. for anyone other than yourself your yeah. whole life. And so we have this moment happening, several uh, at the same time, where you know there are people out in the streets right now chanting Black Lives Matter, just as much as they're chanting, no justice, no peace. Mm-hmm. And also chanting, you know, um, uh, no Trump, no KKK, no fascist USA. And all of those things are telling me that this is, this is not just about Floyd. This is not just about no. Ahmed. This is not just about Tony. This is not just about Brianna. Mm-hmm. And this is not mm-hmm. just about Black Lives Matter. This is about so many things. And when we think about who they're targeting, we have people right now about to cross over barricades in the White House. They're targeting police stations. They're targeting big corporations. Mm -hmm. Corporations. They're targeting targeting the very thing or things that are extracting people Mm -hmm. and wages and life and time from folks. And I'm wondering, what do you make of... The fact that we're still in a pandemic, though. Like, how, how do you feel about the masks, not masks, close, not close? And also the idea that one of the main reasons why, quote, outsiders can't come in is also a health issue. Yeah. If we yeah, come in, totally. like, what are we coming in with? Yeah. So, so what, what, what are your thoughts about um, who's out there? And do you think more people would even be out there? if we weren't in a pandemic. In oh, other absolutely. Words, is, this, is this calmer because yes. of the pandemic? Yes, yes, yes. I know people who are parents with children, young children. I know people who um, have um, autoimmune issues and challenges 
who have told me, I wish that I could be there. I wish that I could be there. My spouse and I even said, we wish we could be out there, but like, what if something happens? Who's going to take care of our kids? Like what, like, what if something happened? Like, that's very real right now because the experiences people are having out there are so potent and risky um, and dangerous, not because of the protesters. That's not why it's dangerous. It's because of a militarized government that's making this dangerous. It's because of the KKK and neo-Nazis infiltrating stuff. That's what's making it dangerous. But the danger is very real. In a way that I haven't experienced in a protest in a long time. I, I told my child the last time I went to a protest that where there was this kind of risk, I was young and single and nobody else to take care of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people, I think more people would be out there. I think more people would. And if we were not in a pandemic and people weren't worried, more people would. I just got a text today from um, a friend of mine, a white, a white mom who's actually the mother of one of my kids' friends who's also becoming my friend. And she's like, there's this showing up for racial justice rally that's happening and I really want to go and I really want to take my kids. Should I be worried? And she, she wasn't asking me because, you know, I'm her friend of color. She was like, I need help thinking through, like, is there a health concern? Because we need to be there. Mm-hmm. I need to take my children there. I need to show them, teach them, mm-hmm. get them connected to these anti-racist white people who are doing work. Mm-hmm. But I'm worried about the coronavirus. And should I be worried about the coronavirus? Like, those are, and this is like, you know, middle-class, middle-income white mom in a, like, white, family-focused, family-centered neighborhood. Like, you can imagine that demographic. Those are the moms who are wanting to show up. So those are the people who are showing up. What can those moms who want to show up, and myself who is, you know, uh, health, health immunocompromised, I would, I would really be risking so much going up. What, what can we do? So I was just, I think that there are multiple things we can do. We can um, first, like, donate to the groups who need it the most. So if you have financial resources, not everybody does, but if you have financial resources, you can donate to bail funds. You could donate to, to folks who are buying foods and um, other things for people at drop-off centers. You can in pick-up centers. You can do those kinds of things in the places that are most on fire right now. Why, but why I, donate to a bail fund? What's a bail fund going to do at this time? Well, people are still getting arrested. People are so in, in order to get out, they are going to need bail. And so um, freedom funds and bail funds, I think, are going to be really, really important for folks because we don't know how many people are going to end up in jail cells right now. It's unclear. And, and when arrested, will probably maybe lose their mask. Yes. No one's going to help them readjust their mask or no, put a mask no, on them. No. And they're going to be in a paddy wagon Correct. or a bus of some kind right. where they're going yep. to be close to each other in an enclosed area Correct. until they're ready to move them. And once their wrists are, yeah, once their wrists are handcuffed or zip tied, that's it. So there's that piece. I think, I think there are some folks who are talking about the, I feel like I saw something today about funds for healthcare because of exactly what you just said, is that people are protesting in a pandemic, mm-hmm. so people are going to get sick. It's inevitable people are going to get sick. Mm-hmm. Um, and people are willing to take the risk because this matters so much, right? So here's the thing, like, we've been on full lockdown. And interestingly enough, I think, and this is just me, this is not scientific, this is anecdotal, but the folks who are risking now to show up shoulder to shoulder at protests 
are the demographic of people that I can tell who respected the rules of the pandemic, who respected the rules of sheltering in place. So that means that like, these are people for whom the coronavirus and the pandemic, they understood the severity. So they stayed home and they only went grocery shopping every three weeks and they washed their hands religiously. And they, like, from what I can tell, and, ju- and that's just a cursory scan, like a scan okay, of what okay. I know. So that, but now, but the, yeah. so what this means is, this is so bad that people were like, we're out. We are, we're coming out. And there's like, you can't stop people from coming out. And, and from what I can see, I've looked at pictures. I've talked to people. I've looked at videos. Like 90% of people are wearing masks who are showing up. That tells me something. This is not the group of people who didn't take the coronavirus seriously. And so on the one hand, if you have been wearing the mask, staying distant, sheltering in place, you have probably the healthiest immune system, the healthiest body right now, but you were also putting yourself close to and confronting the police who have not been staying home, who by and large are not wearing yes. masks, who are touching people, who mm-hmm. definitely have got something on them in masks. Mm-hmm. And so all these folks who are the healthiest are also putting themselves in the same space and being willing to be potentially touched and closer to folks who are potentially the most infected. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, but what that, what that tells me, Felicia, it's exactly what you said. The like convergence and intensity of all the ways in which people are feeling dehumanized, isolated, denied access to the, the, th- the things that we need in life, denied justice, left hanging at the end of a long rope of abuse. Like, to me, this tells me that, like, people have had enough and they're, they're coming out. Like, I just keep thinking people are going against everything that they've done to protect their communities from this illness and coming out to say, this is all we've got left to protect our communities, to stand up for our communities. And I'm willing to risk getting sick. I'm willing to risk the thing that we were trying to prevent because everything is so awful that they're like, what else? Like people have been saying, we've got to do something about black and brown communities dying at disproportionately high rates from coronavirus. People are saying, we've got to stop killing black people. People are saying all of these things over and over. What else left is there to do? And the thing that, that I'm just thinking about now, because so much of this time of the pandemic and, and having to shelter in place, which by the way has been, we're, we're turning the corner on six months now. First case came mm-hmm. out in November. Mm-hmm. So, so six months of this and what I'm struck by right now is that so much of this time has been today, today and tomorrow, today, today and tomorrow, today not thinking about the long-term, about what's gonna happen in a year or in two years, or really what's gonna happen in 10 to 20 years. Mm-hmm. And what you just said both warmed my heart. Yes, these are the right people and they were willing to do whatever it took. They're, they're more and right in line with those folks who were providing free food, 
who were out there getting essential goods for community members who couldn't leave their home, right? They too were risking their healthy lives mm -hmm. to help other folks. Every time somebody puts on a damn mask, it's not just for you, it's for mm -hmm. someone else. So this mm -hmm. is the multiple layer and the, the escalation mm -hmm. of I am doing this for you and me is what yep. we're seeing. Yep. And yet what I'm struck by is we have been here before in a very particular way. I remember that my coming out when I was 14 was only because people were willing to come out in the 80s, in the 70s, mm -hmm. in the 60s, in the 50s. And those brave people who came out in the 80s, many of them died in the 90s mm -hmm. because of a pandemic and people were unwilling to care and react responsibly in treating people like humans. And I bring that up because that means at that time, we lost a generation of the most amazing, incredible people who were talented artists, musicians, writers, on and on. And most importantly, we lost amazing organizers, people on the ground who were willing, forced into activism for many of them to do whatever was going to take to stay alive. And I bring that up because right now, as you were talking, I started getting really scared about the future because yeah. what you're talking about is a generation of the most amazing white allies of the best alliance and solidarity amongst people of color. And they're the ones who are going out there, putting their lives on the line and they may very well lose their lives. And we lose another generation of people, not for any other reason, but because they were willing to fight for all of us. Mm -hmm. And that is an incredibly frightening reality yeah. that I don't know that we're sitting with. And I think part of it, I mentioned this in, in the intro that I just recorded for this season, is that I was struck by this tagging image that I saw on the news where somebody had tagged on this wall. This is the, um, wait, another end of the world is possible. Not another world is possible. Another end of the world is possible. Is that why people are so willing to risk it all? How close do you think we are to the end? And the end of what? I don't know. I don't know. Like, so like, I, I was texting with a friend today and I said, I'm watching all of these people fill streets. I'm watching all of these people put themselves at risk, not just risk of harm from a militarized government and from by police, but risk of harm that they could get a virus and get ill, even if they make it through the protests, never touched by a rubber bullet, never a speck of tear gas in their face, they could get very ill and that could be the thing that gets them. And I said, it is so powerful. Like, so that, that sense of like, this is incredible. Like, um, awe-inspiring to see this happening. And there's a part of me that's like, and will it change anything? Will it change anything? Like, I, I, I don't know. Like, I want to believe that something will change. What the something is with this Congress, what the something is with states that are ready to 
shoot their governors over whether or not they can wear whether they should wear a mask on their face. Like, I don't know. I don't know. Is it like the time for a revolution? And as in like a revolution, like the revolutions I read about in history books, I don't know. Is it like the end of the world? Like, you know, we have just hunting guns. Do we need something else in our house? Like, I don't know. I don't know. I only have play guns, so you're yeah. like one up on me. <laughs> I know, we grew up with hunting guns, but like, you know, and my husband and I are like hardcore leftist progressives and, you know, we're in a state like Missouri, we're really trying to figure out like what protection means. Um, I wanna, I wanna and what protection say- means at this time in our in our life. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Protection... Protection and what it means and what it looks like is being redefined. Yes. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> like, I need protection from the people who have guns so they can protect themselves from the government when they think yeah. the government's going to come and take their guns and kill them. And, and that's why we had and continue to have still, in, in, especially in main cities where there is still such a high rate of the virus, we still have the car marches mm-hmm. because the car has become how you protect yourself. Yeah. Well, it's how you protect the whole family all at once. Yeah. One big mask called the car, you know, <laughs> and, and, and there's, there's this thing that's happening. What I wanted to ask you is, you know, we were talking about Kelly and we were talking about the fact that she's married to this white police officer. And we were talking about how close it is to, to home for you. Mm-hmm. And there was a moment where I wanted to interject and you were like, no, no, no. And I love that, by the way, please keep telling me to shut up when, <laughs> when necessary. Um, and, and I wanted to say, oh my God, Paku, it's, it's even more close to home, right? Because it's a mixed race family. Yes. I'm in a mixed race family. I'm in a mixed race family. I'm, I'm an Asian woman married to a white guy. I I'm know. like all of what people believe Asian I women know. just do. And I, and, and like, Asian women marry white men at a very high rate. Like, yes, there's a whole racial narrative. And, and so like, do so do people yes. in the Latinx community because yes. there's and there's so many becauses. There's so many reasons. There there's love is love. There's internalized white supremacy where yes. you're like, oh, I'm only attracted to this thing that I'm constantly being shown yes. as the only thing that's attractive. Yes. Like, there's so many layers, right? But here's where I want to go today. I was, you know, I asked my white wife, uh, my white partner, hey, can you hand me a, a fork? And, and she maybe didn't hear me because I was trying to keep my voice steady because that's what I'm trying to do right now. I'm trying to keep steady because I'm angry and I'm sad and I'm so rageful, but I'm trying mm-hmm. to keep it steady. So in my steadiest voice, could you pass me a fork? And nothing happened. And then I said, hey, could you pass me a fork? And then I get the fork and it's like, gosh, you don't have to yell. Well, you didn't fucking hear me the first time. And then she's like, whoa, and now I have to stop. And I say to her, I'm really, really sorry. This isn't about you and it's not about the fork. Mm -hmm. And then a couple hours later, I said, listen, I've never prepped you before for this, but I want to now because this has happened before. We've been together for 15 years. And unfortunately, brown people being put in cages and at the border and women being murdered and raped and uh, black folks being uh, murdered and 
left in the public, including family members of mine who are black and who've been left to die on the side of the road. When it happens, she is the closest person to me in my life. And in a pandemic, literally the closest person to me. And I told her, it's going to happen. I'm trying to keep it cool, but some things are going to happen and you're going to bear the brunt of my rage unjustifiably. And I'm sorry that it's you. And yet it is about you. Mm-hmm. You know, like last week we had the story of Mr. Cooper in New York, who was an avid bird watcher, mm-hmm. who was threatened by Mrs. Cooper, white individual, that um, she was going to call the cops on him and tell, and she did. And then she calls the cops and basically yep. changes her voice and tone so that it seems like <laughs> oh, she's being yes. attacked. Yes. And what was she being, quote, attacked? He asked her to put her dog on a leash. And I was struck by the fact that the news kept saying, Miss Cooper, Mr. Cooper, and then would put in brackets, no relation. No relation. And I, Except for, uh, I was yes. thinking to myself, oh, there's a historical relationship yes. here. Yes, and it has to do with slavery. Mm-hmm. Her name is Cooper by, by family of origin, and his last name is Cooper by family that historically owned his family. Yes. And so I am struck by these dynamics when we are in a multiracial world. Mm-hmm. And you and I are in a biracial household. And I'm wondering, how are you doing? Mm. I mean, my spouse and I have been talking a lot about all this. My spouse is enraged. My spouse is um, really, has really focused a lot of energy on um, his anger with fellow white people um, and is always pointing out like, and it's teaching our girls. We have children who are mixed race. They identify as Asian American and mixed race, but primarily racially as Asian American. Um, and he has very transparent conversations with them about white privilege. And, you know, the girls are paying attention. They're nine and 11. They're paying attention to the news. They're watching what's happening. In fact, last night we were, I'm trying not to expose them to too much, but we were watching some of what was happening in Minneapolis because yeah. They know the Twin Cities. That's where grandma and grandpa live. That's where aunts and uncles live. We go there. We spend holidays there. We, we've taken them all over town. They know where I went to grade school and high school. Like, they recognize streets. So we were watching some of what was happening and watching on the news kids getting, people getting tear gassed, and the kids were watching with us, and Lola said, if I was there, I'd take goggles. And Phelan said, if we were there, we'd probably get shot first because we're brown, because we're Asian. And Lola was like, oh, you're probably right. She's like, if we were white, we'd probably last longer. And Nate was sitting there watching them with them. And he was like, yeah, you're probably right. Like they, they know, right? So that's, that's what's happening in our mixed race family in these kinds of conversations. And I've had plenty of people tell me like, oh, children shouldn't learn those things. And I was like, oh, oh you think they're just not going to learn it if you don't talk about it? Mm-hmm. They already know. They already know this. They already know that black people are disproportionately killed by the cops. Not just because I'm talking about it, but because kids have talked about it at school. Like they see it. They are listening to the news when I have it on. Even if it's for two minutes, they're listening because children do that. They listen all the time. They act like they don't, but they hear everything. Mm -hmm. 
That's their gift to us. That's yes, it, that's our, yes. I like that you call it a gift. Thank you. I'm going to try to remember that. <laughs> it is children, children listening, children eavesdropping, yes. children, children listening to adult conversations when they maybe shouldn't be. <laughs> that is that's our compass. Yes, I mean it. It is. It is as much the that sort of listening from the side and eavesdropping. You know what the children. Ex- said last night about what would happen, what they think would happen to them if they were at a protest and what they would need and why some would probably last longer against the cops than others. Um, it's not just because we talk to them directly about that. It's because they hear us talk. I mean, I, you know? I, I, I think about that, that whole situation. If, because I went outside, I'm wearing a Black Lives Matter t-shirt today and I went outside and the white neighbors, the little girl who's my friend, uh, her name is Hannah. Um, She's also our landscaper in the front of the house. Anyways, (laughs) point is that Hannah yells, I like your t-shirt and her mom's outside too. And then she starts to say something else. And I say, thank you, Hannah. And she says something else. I was like, I can't, I can't hear you. What? And her mom says, she's saying something about George Floyd. And she goes, that's the danger when you have, when you let your kids read the news. And I'm like, danger. The and danger. I'm thinking to myself, no. if you don't want your kids to quote, have to see that on TV, then be the adult and change the world so that they don't have mm-hmm. to see that on TV. And mm-hmm. also when, when non, when kids of privilege of any kind mm-hmm. get to see protests they get to see examples of what they could do. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, like you said, they go to school and they learn you're responsible for all these horrible things and there's yeah. nothing you can do about it. You're just responsible. So all you can do is be guilty. Yep. Yep. And, and showing kids, people of all different kinds of backgrounds protesting is actually the best education of fairness that you could possibly give a young person. And that's just my point of view. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. And they've been to, they've been to protests. They, there was a protest here in Kansas City and you know they have been to rallies and marches. And so I think they've never seen um, a protest that turned violent, except for snippets of newsreel that they've seen from other parts of the world. Um, so, you know, now this looks like what a lot of people live with every day, all the time. I just, my phone was vibrating Yes, just a second ago. And, um, we've had some, some kind of intense weather, really sunny, then super windy. And I assumed that the announcement that was coming on my phone was about the weather. It was actually an announcement that the city of Reno is right now in a curfew. Mm. And we're in a curfew because at 2 p.m. today, there was a rally and a march that ended and some of it continued to the police department. I had been watching it and tracking it and everything was fine. And this announcement tells me that things aren't fine. No. And I have lived here for eight years and I've never had my cell phone tell me anything to this effect. Um. My last question for you is, so if there was a movie, a comic, a graphic novel, a TV show, a book written about you 
and your family as the central characters in the story, but it's about this time during the pandemic. What do you imagine the title of it could be? And what oh would maybe gosh. be the image on the front cover? Oh my gosh. Um, is that more announcement about your, I heard your phone. Yeah, it's the curfew. Yeah. Actually, now it's my they announced they announced a curfew, and I'm sure they gave everybody 15 minutes to adhere to the curfew, mm -hmm. which is basically what happened in Seattle today. Mm. Um, I don't, I don't know, Felicia. Like the cover might like the, the uh, quite honestly, the first image I had of the cover was what we were doing during last night's conversation while we were watching buildings burning on the TV. Mm -hmm. And it was not like, typically we watch, we watch TV in our living room, but it wasn't in our living room. It was in our bed. It was in my bedroom, my husband in my bedroom. And I was sitting and folding laundry. We were not sitting like right next to each other. Like I was sitting behind my family, mm. sort of like at the head of at the, like where the pillows are on the bed. And the kids and my husband were actually sitting on the floor at the foot of the bed. And I could just see their heads and the TV and like these baskets of laundry. And that was when they had this exchange about, I would have goggles. Well, we wouldn't last very long because we're brown. And like that, like that's the, that's the first thing I see. And it's so funny because this time, when I hear you ask this time, and I think about the conversations we've had on this podcast, this time hasn't just been this week. When I, this time has been COVID-19, it's been sheltering in place, it's been children not in school, it's been all of those things. But the most potent thing that I see about this time is like the heads of the three people I love the most at the end of a bed watching something on television. And it's buildings burning and people running through streets. Um, and maybe that's kind of the full circle. Maybe, maybe the book is full circle. I don't know. What's the title of this? Because what, it's what you and I were saying. Like, it's not just because George Floyd was murdered. It's not just that. It's people who have been forced into being poor. It's people who have been forced into not having work. It's people who have been forced into labor. It's people who've been forced into cages. It's people who've been forced into places where they have no power, no, like, no authority, no, everything that we don't have, everything that has harmed people because of what we should have simply because we are human beings and we deserve it. Like, this is that moment. This is, this is that, like, the convergence, which is like, here's the, here's the circle. Here it is. Take a bunch of shit away from people, push people down, harm them, destroy them, destroy their communities, take their languages, traditions, cultures, things that they know, take away all the things they need to just stay alive. What the hell do you think is going to happen? What do you think is going to happen? And that's what we were watching. It wasn't just Target burning in Minneapolis or the Target burning in St. Paul where we shop when we go to the store, the, the grocery store. Like it, it's full circle and it's 
the three people I love watching it happen. I know that you weren't prepared to answer that. I was not prepared to answer I know, that. I know that you were maybe hoping that I wasn't going to get to that question. <laughs> and I have to tell you that that was a profound answer. And I'm so happy that you were able to pull that together. I want to end by sharing that so much of our conversation has been grounded in the idea of saying yes and. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so much of what we see happening in the country right now is around people saying, yeah, but. Yeah. Yeah, but what about when it happened to our community? Yeah, but what about when it happened to my mom? Where were you? Mm-hmm. Instead, folks should be saying, yeah, and that happened to my family. Totally. And that happened to my community. And that happened to me. Yes. And I mean, and this is so amazing because when I said to you, my struggle all week, specifically with Hmong people, in our unwillingness to stand in unconditional relationship with Black people, mm-hmm. in a relationship of solidarity that's not transactional, does not depend on whether or not we think we're going to get enough out of the relationship. That's not how movement building works. That's not how justice works. The irony to me of all of these Hmong people telling one, black people how to feel, two, demanding respectability and saying peace is the way to go, peaceful protests. If people protested peacefully, then it'd be fine. Are the same people who are part of a culture that has an entire narrative of militant, aggressive, often violent protest as a people, as an ethnic tribe against the Chinese who colonized us, dehumanized us, did all these things to us. And I'm just like, you wanna be able to tell that story about us and be really proud to tell the story of the freedom fighters and the Chao Fa and all the resistors who have militantly resisted, killed oppressors but then tell black people that they shouldn't do this and be mad about this. And all I have to say is like, I don't know. I'm pretty sure that like 400 years of multi-generational slavery and abuse and trauma. It's amazing. People don't do this every fucking day, (laughs) every day. And that's what Nate, my husband and I were talking about that last night. And he said like, what people are mad because Right now, an entire community and racial group that has been abused, killed for generations Mm. is now tonight engaging in radical protest. And that's not okay. And I just said, yeah, like we burn a shit down every fucking day if that was your experience. We should be surprised that that doesn't happen. We should be. Absolutely grateful grateful. to people, to black people and black communities for not doing that, for being gracious. I mean, Mm. gracious isn't even the right word. Like there is no word to describe the magnitude of graciousness it takes to not burn shit down every day. I think it's called humanity. Yeah, I think it's called humanity. They're the most human amongst all the humans. Yeah. And I appreciate 
you so much again. I think I have to go figure out what, uh, what to do now, uh, or not do as it were. And, um, and I look forward to speaking to you again, not because I like talking about these hard times, but because I like talking about hard things with good people. And you you are definitely one of them. Be well, stay well, (laughs) Paku, and we'll talk soon again. Okay. You've been listening to Been There, Done That, your pandemic survival podcast. I'm your host, Felicia Perez. Stay well and stay human.